You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. The Pandora Papers leak erstwhile private financial transactions by the rich and well-connected. Flubot is using itself to scare victims into installing Flubot. Coinbase themes exploited account recovery systems to obtain 2FA credentials. The U.S. plans to convene an international conference on fighting cybercrime. Conti warns its victims not to talk to reporters. Andrea Little Limbago from Enteros on modeling cyber risk. Carol Terrio has thoughts on facial recognition software. And a ransomware bust in Ukraine leads us to ask, why Capri Sun? From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, October 4th, 2021. First, a quick note on a developing story. Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp are all experiencing outages. The Associated Press is calling the situation a worldwide outage. The appearance is that Facebook withdrew DNS routes, but the cause of the outage is unclear. Much initial speculation suggests that it's an accident, not an attack. Facebook tweeted, quote, We're aware that some people are having trouble accessing our apps and products. We're working to get things back to normal as quickly as possible, and we apologize for any inconvenience, end quote. As we say, the story is still developing, and we'll be following it as it continues to unfold. The Pandora Papers, a 2.94 terabyte leak of financial data about rulers, oligarchs, billionaires, and other prominent people— has been obtained and published by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, the ICIJ for short. Quote, Millions of leaked documents and the biggest journalism partnership in history have uncovered financial secrets of 35 current and former world leaders, more than 330 politicians and public officials in 91 countries and territories, and a global lineup of fugitives, con artists, and murderers. End quote. The partners in the investigation included 150 news outlets. A small selection of that list of partners includes The Washington Post, The BBC, The Guardian, Radio France, The Indian Express, Zimbabwe's The Standards, Morocco's Le Desk, and Ecuador's Diario El Universo. The take, which itself derives from multiple sources, noses out the single-source Panama Papers, which had previously stood atop the leaderboard of leaks, involving the lifestyles of the rich and famous. The papers were obtained from 14 distinct financial services and law firms. 
The ICIJ characterized the leak as providing, quote, a sweeping look at an industry that helps the world's ultra-wealthy, powerful government officials and other elites conceal trillions of dollars from tax authorities, prosecutors, and others, end quote. There's nothing necessarily illegal about the shifting of funds, as the ICIJ itself points out. Such transactions are not against the law in many, perhaps most, jurisdictions. The problem the ICIJ sees is that an elaborate system has grown up to shield the well-connected from burdens others bear, and to do so without much, if any, public scrutiny. Some U.S. states have enacted financial privacy laws that make them attractive locations for the kind of activity the report details, most prominently the ICIJ quote sources telling it South Dakota, Delaware, Nevada, and Alaska. 336 politicians are mentioned in dispatches. Ukraine leads with 38. Russia places second with 19. The Guardian says that a spokesman for Russian President Putin has dismissed the material in the Pandora Papers as unsubstantiated. Flubot's operators are running a scareware campaign designed to get victims to install the malware. The Come On, Cert NZ warns, is itself a warning against Flubot. Quote, The installation page for Flubot has changed to look like a warning page. If you see this page, close the page immediately and do not click Install Security Update. End quote. Flubot, Bleeping Computer explains, depends heavily on social engineering to gain access to, and eventually what amounts to complete control over, an Android device and its users' data. Coinbase accounts use two-factor authentication, but attackers were able to access and steal from some 6,000 users, InfoSecurity Magazine reports. The thieves obtained email addresses, password, and phone number from some other sources, and then, Coinbase's disclosure explains, were able to exploit a weakness in Coinbase's account recovery system to get a second-factor authentication code via SMS. Late Friday, prompted by a nasty wave of recent ransomware privateering and the arrival of Cybersecurity Awareness Month, U.S. President Biden announced plans to convene a discussion among some 30 countries where they might arrive at a joint coordinated response to cybercrime. Which nations in particular the U.S. intends to invite to the table hasn't yet been announced. The relevant section of the statement says, quote, We are also partnering closely with nations around the world on these shared threats, including our NATO allies and G7 partners. This month, the United States will bring together 30 countries to accelerate our cooperation in combating cybercrime, improving law enforcement collaboration, stemming the illicit use of cryptocurrency, and engaging on these issues diplomatically. We are building a coalition of nations to advocate for and invest in trusted 5G technology and to better secure our supply chains. And we are bringing the full strength of our capabilities to disrupt malicious cyber activity, including managing both the risks and opportunities of emerging technologies like quantum computing and artificial intelligence. End quote. The president concludes his whole-of-nation appeal by commending digital hygiene to the citizens, urging all Americans to lock our digital doors, and urging tech companies to build technologies securely by design. The Conti ransomware gang really doesn't want its victims engaging the media. The gang has threatened to dump the data they've stolen should they get wind of a target's talking to reporters, the record says. It's not a surprising move. 
given the cynical positioning ransomware gangs have engaged in to depict themselves as something akin to a recovery service or a pen-testing operation, it seems natural that they should attempt to enforce a gangland version of a non-disclosure agreement. The gang's statement on their policy is worth quoting in its entirety from the record. First, if we see a clear indication of our negotiations being sent to the media, we will terminate the negotiations and dump all the files on our blog. We are the best team, and you can Google what estimated revenue we have. This became possible only due to our outstanding reputation. Thus, if we need to sacrifice another $10 million to cut the negotiations but protect our name, don't doubt, we will do so. End quote. Note the advertorial best team, and Google it if you don't believe them, and outstanding reputation. Second, here's what happens if you do talk to someone. Quote, if we see our chats in public, we will also dump your files. If this happens after the ransom is already paid by the target who shared our chats, we will dump somebody else's files as retaliation. We will not care if you directly shared our chats with the media researchers or if they extracted it from the virus total after you uploaded our samples there. Since the security firms who share chats via their pocket journalists have no concept responsibility, Therefore, we will assign responsibility to the target who is in the chat. We are not advocating collective responsibility via collective punishment, but if this is the only option, we will do so. End quote. Well, contempt for the contemptible. May Conti's success and high reputation be rewarded with matched sets of bracelets, courtesy of whatever jurisdiction eventually snaps them up. And finally, the Ukrainian National Police, with cooperation from their international partners Europol, the French National Gendarmerie, and the United States Federal Bureau of Investigation, made two arrests in a ransomware case. The two gentlemen of alleged crime were arrested last week in Kiev. Ukrainian police said that the two were responsible for ransomware attacks on more than 100 foreign companies. Europol declined to name what gang, if any, the two men were affiliated with. The investigation is still ongoing, and Europol has no wish to tip anyone's hand. Photographs of the alleged criminal's den of crime are remarkably unprepossessing. There are boxes of U.S. $100 bills, Benjamin Franklin's picture easily recognizable, and a simple table supporting what looks like a gamer's desktop, a red dragon motif on the front and a neon-esque decoration on the side, a keyboard, microphone, and headphones is next to the workstation proper, musical keyboard, that is. Poised atop the desktop are three Capri Sun juice pouches. We don't know about you, but to us, nothing says, I am a case of arrested development living in my parents' basement than a stash of Capri Sun. A serious crook would be drinking instant coffee. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. 
In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. How do you feel about facial recognition? Your answer to that question could fall amongst a broad spectrum of feelings and conclusions. Security tool or privacy nightmare or something else. Our UK correspondent Carol Terrio has been pondering facial recognition and she offers these thoughts. Today I want to talk about facial recognition or face prints. Now first, facial recognition is definitely big business. In 2018, the facial recognition market was $4 billion, but it's predicted to grow to $10 billion in four years' time, by 2025. So what exactly is facial recognition? Technopedia defines facial recognition as a biometric software application capable of uniquely identifying or verifying a person by comparing and analyzing patterns based on a person's facial contours. So simply put, everyone has a unique facial structure, and this software is able to analyze features to identify who you are. Panda Security described how facial recognition worked in four simple steps. Step one is detect a face. Amongst all the other noise, it needs to be able to say, oh, I see a face, in the same way that your smartphone might try and detect a face when you're taking a portrait. Second is facial analysis. So the photo is captured and analyzed, looking for all the tiny points of difference in your face that makes it unique from anybody else's. Then all that information needs to be crunched and turned into data. And that data, this code, is what is the face print. Once the face print has been converted, it can be used to find a match in a database of other face prints. Now, of course, some of us are pushing for increased use of this technology, particularly following a pandemic. Isn't it nice not to have to touch things that other people are touching all the time? It's been used to authenticate students in schools. It's been used in airlines like Delta and JetBlue to identify passengers. It's been used in grocery stores and bars to make sure that people are old enough to buy alcohol. It's also been used to stop shoplifting. It's been used by the authorities to try and identify suspects. And let us not forget the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of apps that collect biometric data directly from your device. But here are a few things to consider. 
how long are they planning to hold on to all this data? How are they going to use it in the future? Remember, this is not a number that can be changed. This is your face. And unless you get drastic plastic surgery, you will be able to be identified at any time. Think about it. This technology is not just in the hands of professionals that have signed an oath of conduct. How much ethics training do you think the technicians are being given by companies out there with this tech? So until the regulators catch up with the technology, I'd respectfully suggest that we be mindful of tagging pictures in social and online, of using apps that collect biometric data, and just check the IoT devices like your TV or your home assistant or your computer are not collecting and storing this information without your full consent. Note that you may have actually agreed to it in the tiny terms and conditions. You can always go and check those. In short, look after your privacy by looking after your face. This was Carol Terrio for The Cyberwire. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Andrea Little-Limbago. She is the Vice President of Research and Analysis at Interos. Andrea, it's always great to have you back. Um, I want to touch today on this whole concept of being able to model cyber risk and get some of your insights on that. What can you share with us today? Yeah, thanks, Dave. It's always fun to have these conversations with you. Uh, when, th- you know, when thinking about cyber risk, I, th- I think you know, very much so it's one of those areas where we're still stuck in some of these frameworks from previous eras that worked well enough, but you know, as the world's evolving very, very quickly and as technologies are evolving, uh, we're starting to realize that you know, what, we were doing, what we were doing before is necessary, but not necessarily sufficient for what, where we need to be going to be prepared for cyber risk going forward. And so a lot of the core fa- you know, facets that we still rely on, you know, multi-factor authentication, encryption, sort of some of the, what we consider the basics of cyber hygiene, 100% are essential. And in many cases, we still haven't actually cracked the nut on it and ensuring you know, companies are following some of those best practices. But at the same time, what we still re- really rely on are a lot of self-assessments, which makes it hard. I mean, it's, it's, you know, if you're grading yourself, we're all going to be doing great. You know, some, not all the time, but that's you know, generally how it goes. And then you're also, you know, the, the alternate look at it is leveraging technology and machine learning and basically being able to you know, leverage some of those concepts to see what's exposed online and, and so forth. And where, you know, it's nice seeing some of the chain, you know, the evolution in that area. But, you know, in both areas where we really need to start focusing even more so is starting to get into building out the foundation so we can have some of those actual firm level assessments being a little bit more independent. And even some of the independent evaluations aren't always independent, right? 
Um, and then mm. on the machine learning side, really starting to take advantage of that and, and combine the two. But I'd say you know, even on top of that, that's sort of the you know where we where we've gone so far. But then you know incorporating other kinds of concepts such as you know what industry are the are the you know, various companies and where are they located and uh, what we haven't done a great job is really honing in almost on the uh, the threat model at an even higher level than just the firm, seeing where they sit within the world. Are we at the point where we have enough data to uh, successfully model these sorts of things? Can the uh, the machine learning systems do, do they have enough that we we can be confident that what we're getting out of them is a certain degree of uh, reliable? Yeah, and that's a great question because that's what we still we you know. I'll, I'll be the first one to not say machine learning you know, solves every problem because we, we see that, I think, too much when we used to walk around the, the conference floors that, you know, yeah. push the button. <laughs> I think that you, <laughs> I think, and, you know, we're, we're getting there and it, at a minimum, it can help provide some additional insights. And, you know, cybersecurity is just such an interesting area where we're really overwhelmed with the amount of data that is available for analysis. But at the same time, we're very data poor because we don't have access to the right data and have a very hard time sort of filtering out and getting to what we need to know uh, and what we need to get to as fast as possible. So there's a lot of room for advancement there. But even at a higher level, leveraging some aspects of data analytics and technology, we can get to the point where we do know, you know, either based on the whole range of vendor reports that are out there, uh, like providing a lot of useful information as far as certain industries, or looking at, you know, some analyses as far as at the country level where certain, uh, for instance, you know, there was a good report earlier this year on Brazil, and basically the ransomware that was really prevalent in Brazil wasn't the same that was prevalent elsewhere. And so if we start thinking about, you know, looking beyond just saying everything's the same everywhere and making it more nuanced, saying, okay, you know, within this country and within this industry, a firm is going to be more likely to be exposed to, you know, these kind of risks. And we don't really look at it that way. And that's where, you know, as a, from a social science perspective, those are the areas that I'd want to augment on top of what we were already doing and really thinking about, you know, customizing that threat model based on, you know, where they're situated as well. And that's where there's a lot of room, in, you know, to do some interesting work both by leveraging the data of a lot of vendors that have, you know, have already been out there doing that, but also just doing our own analyses to look at, you know, even, you know, in virus total, as far as you know, where are some of the, you know, what's getting populated there and where's it coming from. Then when you start thinking about how you're, tu- you're tuning, you know, your endpoint detection and so forth, those kind of security tools, you may want to have them targeted much more so on what, you know, what kind of attacks you're going to be, going to be getting in certain locations. And so there's a lot of interesting work, I, I think, that's starting up in that area and a lot more to be done if we really sort of open the aperture of how we think about cyber risk. So this sort of thing could could provide you with insights on where to place your limited resources, be they financial or human resources or those, those sorts of things, uh, give you a better idea of perhaps where your actual risk lies? Yeah, no, that's exactly. And that's, you know, the goal should be for any of these kind of risk models that are, that are made are to help really under-resourced companies figure out how to best use the minimal resources they have. And so the more that we can move from cover everything from everywhere all the time to really focusing on here's what you're more likely to see, here's how frequently it's most likely to be, here's the vectors that they're more likely to be using, and customizing it in that, that way, you know, the better off we're going to be thinking about cyber risk. And even you know, taking it a step further, you know, and not just looking at you know, your own headquarters, but you know, where are the rest of you, know, your larger footprint across the globe as well? Because those are the vector, those in the entryways as well uh, into, into your system, into your network. Yeah. All right. Well, interesting stuff. Andrea Little-Limbago, thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks so much.
that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.